This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. For tuning in, this is a multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say in conjunction with Latino politics and news. I'm Tony Diaz, a Libro Traficante. Happy to join you today as we talk about an important figure in Chicano history and American history, Gus Garcia. We're going to be joined by two individuals who've been pushing hard to make sure a story is told. And we'll be talking about a new oral history documentary titled Remembering Gus Garcia. And I do want to let you know that as a multi-platform broadcast, you get to experience this program several different ways, several different times. So, of course, we're starting right now on social media. The video airs on fox26houston.com. The audio will air on 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston's community station. And we want to remind folks, if you are a listener, please do go to kpft.org and make a donation to keep the station going so that we can create programming like this. We like to say it's our history, our terms, on our terms. And of course, we also come live to you at different events, especially now that we are in a new phase of the, the COVID-19 era. So we're happy to be coming to different places in Texas, the U.S. Uh, shortly. I should let you know as well that uh, my book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital, will be having its national release in San Antonio at the Latino Bookstore, which is located at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. 1300 navigation that'll be friday august 5th 6 p.m the event is free but i'll also be visiting mexico city the libre traficantes will be leading a libre traficante caravan in california in september and on monday october 3rd we're gonna have a huge event in honor of hispanic heritage month talking about several folks from houston that have made an impact nationally. We're celebrating community cultural capital generated in Houston, Texas, and we're gonna be doing it with 700 friends there at the Alley Theater, Monday, October 3rd, 6 p.m. It'll be a free event, but you will have to register for tickets. And again, this is all part of a national program, not just to release the books. So don't mistake any of that for simply a book tour. We are celebrating community cultural capital and building ties. So throughout all of these visits, we're looking forward to beginning chapters of Nuestra Palabra everywhere so that on this forum throughout this year and into the 25th anniversary of Nuestra Palabra next year, that's right. Our organization is turning 25. We want to celebrate your voices from every part of the nation. That means that as we enter our quarter century, we want to make sure we're on this program with poets, writers, intellectuals from Houston, San Antonio, Los Angeles, Mexico City, Chicago, Nueva York, Miami, Denver, Las Vegas. The list should go on and on. And we want to have established writers, new writers, and covering topics that we know are vital to our community. So please join us as we continue this journey Today's a really special moment for me because personally, I've always held in high esteem the work of Tejano Gus Garcia, and I feel he hasn't been given his due in Texas history, American history. Um, others who share that sentiment are doing something about it as well. So I do want to welcome to the show uh, two folks that are doing something about it. Efren Gutierrez and Placido Salazar. First of all, thank you both for joining us on the show. 
Thank you, Tony. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for allowing us to be on your show. And we are talking about many things, but especially your new oral history documentary, Remembering Gus Garcia, which we're going to talk about. We're going to tell people what the film is about. We'll touch on his history. We'll talk about the the history that you're revealing, some of the sources that have been overlooked. We also want to know how to support the film and where we can see it. But first of all, tell us uh, tell us uh, first a little bit about yourselves each and tell us where you're talking to us from. West side of San Antonio. We're in my son's office here in the west side, at the very heart of the west side of San Antonio. Este, my name is Efraín Gutierrez. Uh, I'm recognized as the first Chicano filmmaker for my film, Please Don't Bury Me Alive, which was screened in 1976 for the first time. And now it's made the National Film Registry with the Library of Congress. I've made uh, five films altogether. Uh, the other two after Please Don't Bury Me Alive is uh, Amor Chicano is Forever, Chicano Love is Forever, y luego uh, Ran Tecato Ran, and all three films are archived by UCLA. Um, the thing is that uh, it's interesting that I, I'm proud, but at the same time kind of sad that, you know, here we are, you know, in 1976, and I'm the first Chicano filmmaker to produce a film, you know, way back in, in, at that time. When there, to me, you know, I, I talked to Ricardo Montalban, you know, I talked to a lot of people in, in California for them to do a Chicano movie, nobody ever did it. I even talked to Luis Valdez, you know, from Teatro Campesino, but everybody thought, you know, too many problems, you know, with the Screen Actors Guild and all that. Sabino and I, uh, a partner that passed away, we got together and I don't know how we did, but we, you know, we put a, a movie together that got the attention of a lot of Chicanos in, in Texas and then as we took it out. Este, long story there, pero, the film, again, like I said, I'm proud because it made, you know, uh, we got all this recognition. But, you know, again, to me, I felt that, you know, it should have been somebody else a long time before me. And, but again, I, I don't have any regrets on it. I'm retired. Uh, I used to be an organizer for the Texas State Teachers Association. I was a union organizer. Before that, I was a migrant <laughs> farm worker. As the, I was a migrant farm worker until I was 15 years old. Uh, we traveled all the way up to Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. Uh, we picked cherries in Traverse City, Michigan, Didel, Betabel, Dahoen, Dexlilimpel, and Deshaige, and Munger, Michigan, which is close to Bay City and Saginaw. And then we picked tomatoes and potatoes and pickles and everything around Auburn, Indiana, the Woodburn, Indiana, Defiance, Ohio, up to into Illinois a little bit. That was my life, you know, from we would leave in April, go up north. <laughs> and come back and basically start school in January to April. To me, I find it very interesting that some of the problems that uh, we had with segregation dealt with because of the migrants, because of the migrant workers like myself back in the 30s here in, in Del Rio when uh, we kind of won that, that, uh, that case. But, you know, in the end, you know, basically they were allowed to keep on uh, holding us back three years, you know, up to three years to get us into the first grade. And this is the work that Gus continued. At that time, you know, before, when he came out of the service, one of the things that he did was first he shut down Puerto ISD. They were going to build a Mexican school in 1947. And before the, the, the case in, in California came up. And then after the case in California, Westminster uh, decision up there, then Gus again, you know, we filed the Delgado versus Bastard. So to me, it ties the very end because even though Gus had won that, in 1952, here at Edgewood, you know, they had what they call pre-primer. And in my understanding, that was kind of a way to hold us back. And you're actually it, touching on a lot of the different threads of the history that's not taught. Um, let, let's hear a little bit from Placio. Placio, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your trajectory to this moment. Okay, my name is Placido Salazar. I was born in Edcash, Texas, down in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, I grew up in La Villa, which is a small town, population of about 1,200, not counting cats or dogs. We grew up in a, in a segregated uh, town, school. I started uh, early in life. I, of course, I was a, a migrant worker. We, we worked the fields also, you know, hoeing or chopping uh, weed, uh, weeds, picking cotton and all that. Uh, we went through that. But at a very early stage, I also started working uh, with a microphone at the age of seven. Uh, at the age of eight, I started participating in talent shows uh, with my singing, and I, I could play the guitar. Uh, and I won first place uh, in, in every town in the, in the valley. Don Pedro Ayala hired me at the age of eight, uh, El Bonarca del Acordeón, 
uh, he hired me to play guitar and sing and uh, MC in front of the uh, group uh, at the age of eight. And uh, he paid me uh, $8 uh, a night, uh, but working in the fields uh, from sunup to sundown, we would get paid $2 a day. So it was a no brainer to go, uh, go more into music. And so I've been a musician all my life since, uh, since uh, the age of eight. Then at the age of 17, I enlisted in the United States Air Force and I stayed there for 20 years. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I got wounded in, in, in Vietnam and uh, still paying the price for that. Also, um, excuse me for interrupting. He also has the Purple Heart and the Bronze Medal with Honor. Bronze Star. Bronze Star with Honor. For heroin. Wow. Thank you. My dad was uh, an advocate for better education. He was the first uh, Mexico-Americano to be elected to the school board in La Villa. And so he started fighting to, to, uh, uh, to hire more Mexican-American uh, teachers. Before that, we only had one Mexican-American teacher. And uh, so he was successful in doing that and uh, bringing in more, uh, more money to, to build more classrooms because we only had four classrooms when I went to school. And like Efrain says, uh, you know, by the time I was nine years old, by the time I got into first grade, and uh, luckily, uh, I skipped fourth and seventh grade. Uh, but still, you know, uh, many many of our uh, of my contemporaries would get to the ninth grade and then drop out because uh, they were too old to go into high school with the uh, with the Anglo kids that were uh, two or three years younger than we were. So we felt kind of stupid that. Uh, they considered us dumb in the in the in the fact that uh, we were older than than our contemporary Anglo Anglo students. Uh, it was it was very difficult, and uh, so I would say at least fifty percent of the kids dropped out at the ninth grade, which was a a gross travesty for our population. Uh, they had no choice but to go into the uh, uh, workforce at very minimum wages. And uh, we're exposed to a lot of chemicals because the the, uh, the airplane would come in, the crop duster would come in mm -hmm. uh, two feet off the ground. So we had to hit the ground and everything and then continue working with the chemical contamination uh, until uh, sundown. And uh, so uh, many, at least half of my contemporaries died at a very young age. And I would consider that they died because of the chemical contamination. Mm. Uh, I stayed in the Air Force for, for 20 years and then went into radio broadcasting and then I started uh, recording with mariachi and I toured throughout uh, Mexico all the way up to uh, here in the States, all the way up to California, uh, all the way up to, to uh, uh, Michigan. So uh, I've had a very successful life, although I was leading about three lives at the same time. Llorando la obsesión de tu recuerdo me alejo para siempre de tu vida, de aquel amor que fue llana de espero, porque comprendo que fue mentira. Murieron mis más bellas ilusiones, hoy vivo cautivado en mi amargura, de aquel amor que unió dos corazones. Tan solo queda mi desventura Te importan mi amargura y mi dolor Si en ti logré encontrar felicidad Si tú ya eres feliz con otro amor Que yo sufra por ti, ¿qué más queda? Los días para mí pasan muy tristes Cambio para ti son días felices Y mientras ríes tú yo estoy llorando Por el engaño que a mi alma hiciste Si en ti logré encontrar felicidad 
Tú ya eres feliz con otro amor Que yo sufra por ti ¿Qué más te da? Los días para mí pasan muy tristes En cambio para ti son días felices Y mientras ríes tú yo estoy llorando Por el engaño que a mi alma hiciste Por el engaño que a mi alma hiciste Por el engaño que a mi alma hiciste really appreciate both of you sharing uh, some of those important aspects of your history because um, it's leading up to what we'll talk about for Gus Garcia because he did excel in education, but you're setting up this context historically where attaining education was so complicated for our community. You mentioned social issues, economic issues. You mentioned the discrimination at the school level. You mentioned that there had to be this fighting of these laws, but I do want to spend a little more time talking about the migrant work experience because uh, my parents were migrant workers. Uh, my sisters also picked uh, crops in, in Texas. You mentioned several things. Also, you mentioned how the the circuits for picking crops ran from Texas up to Michigan. A lot of folks don't know that. Um, there's actually several books out about the um, the railroad workers in the north. My father became a railroad worker. When you mentioned Betabel, I remember my gente talking about picking Betabel, which is beets. It's fascinating to hear that word because a lot of folks don't hear it. And, and perhaps people may see the hard part of all that struggle, but it's also endearing to build a bridge among our community to know that we've been through that, survived, and have succeeded. You also mentioned the legacy of Chicanos and Mexican Americans in World War II. So, so really appreciate that rich history that you're both bringing to the table. Let, let's start talking about Gus Garcia's accomplishments as a student. See, Gus Garcia left Laredo because he was born in Laredo at a very young age. But his uncle, a very wealthy uncle, that very people you know have given credit for, Argindigi, they own they own oil wells in they've owned oil companies since 1942. I'm talking about Gus's uncle on his mother's side. But anyway, he sent him because he saw him as you know a genius that he was, and kind of anointed him as that chosen one. And so they he sent his mother and his, uh, Gus's older brother to San Antonio. Now, when he was here in San Antonio, he went through you know. Uh, Catholic schools, but he ended up at Thomas Jefferson High School, one of the high schools that's one of the most beautiful high schools in all of the United States. It was built during the Depression era when Gus attended school was in 1932 when he graduated from Thomas Jefferson. He graduated as the valedictorian, the most intellectual a student out of a predominantly Anglo uh, uh, student body because that school was built basically for the affluent uh, neighborhood that had started going towards the west side of San Antonio back in the 30s. Efren, let's let's pause right there too, because I think actually today, if we look at Houston Independent School District, you're going to see several uh, Spanish surnames listed as the valedictorians. How, I really would like to pause and point out how, what a major accomplishment that was back in that day. You mentioned here was a new high school. We're talking about segregation existing in Texas, you're not going to have Mexican-Americans at that school. Um, you're not going to have at the schools if Mexican-Americans can attend or Mexicanos can attend all the resources. Why is it such a big deal that he excelled at that school at that time? Well, to me, I think it's a, a big deal because Gus made it a big deal. Gus always wanted to be number one. Gus always, he, he felt that especially the gringos, the Anglos, you know, were always looking down and considered Mexicanos. And that was kind of his, you know, his whole career that he spent after the, the coming back from the war, from the military, uh, you know, finishing the military service and helping write the constitution for the United Nations when the United was built uh, by Truman was asking personally to go and help build the United Nations. Well, Gus just dedicated almost the rest of his entire life mm improve the education for Mexico-Americanos, Chicanos like us, Latinos, you know, in Texas. But basically, he was talking about Mexico-Americanos. 
except like a lot of people remember my family, everybody in those days, there was no word as Chicano. There was no word. Uh, you know, we were Mexicans. You know, mm-hmm. We were Mexican American. American. We were Americans, but since we were Mexicans, I mean, gringos just saw us as Mexicans. They didn't care whether you're a Mexican American or whether you're a Mexicano. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just for being a Mexican American, you know, you would get in, in a lot of problems. So, to me, you know, it was so important that you know it is it is it starts you know like a legacy that I think that a lot of uh, other you know educators would start getting into. So that's one of the things that, that I see. Now, the other thing that, that when Gus got to, to the University of Texas, which was brought to my attention by Blandina Cárdenas, Bandy Cárdenas, is that Gus, as the, as the George Sanchez at the University of Texas, started the ALBA Club, ALBA, A-L-B-A, ALBA Club. The inspiration for everything was Gus Garcia. And the students that were there at, at that university were really some of the most I mean, you're talking about uh, James uh, DeAnda was a student mm-hmm. from Houston. From yeah, from mm-hmm. Houston. Este Andrete, este Chris Andrete was another student uh, of Gus. I mean, you know, students at UT. And Gus was the was their idol, was their mentor, and mm-hmm. was the was the professor that they started it. And Gus would literally go down, you know, several times a month to talk to to encourage all these students. And out of those. I mean, I don't have the list. Blandina, Guinea, you know, it's, it's just so many people that have done so many great things came out of the Alba Club. And this happened when the, kind of the first, let's say, intellectual Chicanos, let's say, were starting together in a club in the 40s at the University of Texas. And uh, they even selected him as the Latino of the Year in 1948. So what I'm getting at, Gus started a legacy to make us want to be better than uh, than everybody else. Meaning, you know, like we don't want to be looked down as a Mexicano, if, you know, that we're not smart enough. And that bothered, you know, I'm pretty sure that how because he did bother him how Mexicano was treated. <laughs> the way Mexico <laughs> Mexicano. Was well, I mean, again, I, 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 you're putting it in an interesting way because he was excelling, especially in arenas where there weren't Mexican-Americans, Mexicanos, Chicanos, and he demanded that attention. Um, I can imagine it's going to seem like abrasive, perhaps, uh, too competitive, and he's winning. So, (laughs) you know, you got to have that sort of uh, fighter mentality to keep fighting. And I I also, whenever I talk about Gus Garcia, I want to remind people, if you think it's bad now for us, okay? If you think it's bad now for us, you can't even imagine what it was like for our gente back then. The fact that uh, the Gas Garcia excelled before the uh, Supreme Court, which, uh, by the way, may, uh, if I'm sure your friend will add some to to the insults that uh, the legal team were exposed to, but Gas Garcia turned it right around and uh, ended up embarrassing Anglo uh, justices. But at, at any rate, the uh, the victory that Gas Garcia secured from the uh, Supreme Court not only helped our raza, you know, the Mexican-Americans, it also helped the blacks, and it helped to a certain extent even the low-income Anglos, because at that time, of course, they had the signs at most places, uh, no dogs, no niggas. No Mexicans, and like I tell everybody when I'm invited to, to speak before uh, universities, when I'm invited as a, as a motivational speaker, although I'm a 10th grade dropout, uh, I always tell them, you know, everybody knows that most dogs cannot read, but the reason why they put dogs at the top was to denigrate us, to let us know that uh, they valued dogs more than they valued uh, Mexican-Americans. But even when I went into the military, there was a lot of discrimination, you know, even uh, our first, the first sergeant would refer to me and other Mexican-Americans as wetbacks, greasers, uh, taco benders, etc. you know. And uh, so we would, uh, I, I would fight back, but that's, uh, that's why I, uh, after 20 years in the military, I retired at a lower rank than most others uh, retired, simply because mm-hmm. I would always uh, <laughs> answer back, you know, uh, I never let uh, this uh, Italian uh, first sergeant uh, step not only on me, 
but on other Mexican American that were lower ranking than than I was. But the thing is, his victory in in the uh, in the uh, before the Supreme Court also helped improve discrimination in the military and in other uh, aspects of, uh, of of life. You know, for uh, again, not just for Mexican Americans, but for blacks and and everybody, because uh, little by little, you saw those uh, racist. Uh, science disappear. Even the ones that uh, that read, we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody, which of course had, uh, those signs also included the the uh, uh, the uh, Anglo's that were low income that were not dressed according to how they uh, these uh, so-called upper class uh, Anglo's uh, expected. So they would refri- refuse service even to uh, Anglos, uh, low-income Anglos. ugly derogatory language that was common especially in texas um there were racial slurs that were just part of commerce um and especially in texas segregation was just a part of life uh that's documented in many different ways uh, i want to give a shout out to a couple books uh you have dr cynthia orozco on one of the covers of her books you see the sign uh no dogs or mexicans allowed um you mentioned uh judge de anda i want to give a shout out to the late great uh, Professor Olivas, who was a law professor at the University of Houston, his book was called Colored Men and Hombres Aquí, Hernandez versus Texas, the Emergence of Mexican-American Lawyering, which talks about uh, one of the cases that uh, Gus Garcia was involved in and, and had a national historical impact as well. So I do want to mention some of those figures. There's a lot of history that we can't touch on. Let's get to the film then, Ephraim. Tell folks a little bit about what they can expect when they have a chance to see Remembering Gus Garcia, because this is informing some of that moment. Um, how long is how long is the film? It's going to run out to, uh, you know, 40, 45 minutes, because, you know, we're still tweaking a couple of things and we're adding, you know, it's just that we're finding so much more history, history about Gus Garcia, people that knew people. That, so, but in our, in our documentary, what you're going to find is, providing more insight into who, what happened to Gus, who was he? I mean, I got a little upset myself several years ago when I started reading about Gus, because everybody that has written about Gus, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to cut anybody down, and the documentaries that have been written about Gus, you know, uh, Class Apart, The Longoria Affair, I mean, these are great documentaries, but they deal, which is very important, they deal with the cases, they, especially the, uh, the Hernandez versus Texas case, but sadly, everything that I've read and seen about Gus has always been that sadly he died as uh, homeless, uh, penniless, no family, no friends, in a bus stop in front of the old farmer's market. Some say that he'd been there two, three hours before anybody noticed him. That's not true. And that's what we're, we bring to, to the attention and the little screening that we had the, uh, the other day. People were very interested because they were learning for the first time, you know, that Gus had family. See, to begin with, when Gus made the statement in, in, the, in the Supreme Court that he told Sam Houston, you know, when my family was here, because they questioned, you know, whether we were citizens. Greasers. Greasers, speak only. Whatever. So that's when Gus got up and he said, you know, my family was here a 100 years before that wetback, Sam Houston came to Texas. <laughs> the reason, you know, it's true, because Gus Garcia's family comes on the mother, I'm sorry, on, well, on the grandmother's side, as the, on his father, but on, on the guerra side, they come from the Gutierrez Guerra land grant that was given to the, uh, by the King Bernardin in 1956. And they gave that land grant and it stretches from now, you know, it was from 18. Yeah, I mean, no, 17. Yeah, it stretches from uh, Zapata, which is now Zapata, all the way to Laredo. Uh, but it used to be from Mexico, the original uh, land grant, which was La Revilla, the first settlement along the Rio Grande on this area of town. That was in 1750, 
anyway, <laughs> trying to remember that. But anyway, they came in. So La Guerra still owned, you know, I mean, Gus's family owns a large portion of that uh, property in Los Ojuelos. Los Ojuelos was where Jovita Idar first taught. That property was owned by Gus Gonzalez, I mean, Gus Garcia's grandfather, Los Ojuelos. That's a whole community. That was owned by Gus Garcia's uh, family. That's where his father was born. That's where his father was a rancher and cattleman. Now, on his mother's side, his family, they've been in the oil business since 1942. They are in the oil company, you know, all over uh, in, in Texas, all the way to Louisiana. They own Conoco oil. Part of, you know, in, in, a large part of Exxon. Now, and, you know, there's a lot of history there because, you know, the Garcia lost the big mineral rights when they came in in the 30s when they discovered the oil. That's when they, you know, everything went apart. And the Garcias ended up losing, and eventually his grandfather ended up losing the, the farms and everything. Uh, in the film, we show a little, you know, they have a marker there of the Garcia farm, the, you know, a little history about the Garcia uh, Guerra connection. But uh, sadly, you know, most of the, uh, uh, the property has already been divided up and there's issues going through there. 50% uh, of the oil mineral rights were lost. There's still some families with Garcia that related to Garcia that still have, you know, they get, let's say, from the mineral rights out of there. But, you know, that's typical of families, you know, they're kind of, one side has it and some side don't, you know, whatever happened. That's not my issue. But what I'm telling is, Gas Garcia's father was uh, born in Los Ojuelos. He was a cattleman, he was a rancher on land that was owned by his family all the way up to uh, 1756. One thing that uh, sets our uh, documentary apart, Tony, mm -hmm. is uh, a small part of it is from what we read about uh, about uh, Gas Garcia's history. But for the most part, we interviewed people that were that had close contact, uh, personal, uh, you know, person-to-person -person contact with Gus, uh, including family, but including other members, uh, other friends that. Uh, when Gus was down on his luck that, you know, he, he really got involved yeah. with alcohol, they provided a place for him to sleep there at uh, El Mercado. So he did not die on a, on a park bench. He, he died there in, in uh, El Mercado. Uh, and uh, so they uh, saw to it that, that he was able to, to eat and all that. So he, didn't, he did not die penniless or freeless. And uh, these uh, people were telling us that when Gus walked into any restaurant the people would stand up and applaud that he was like a movie star i got to see that when i was about 17 years old before i went my last year as a migrant on my own i went to buy a car up and you know work as a migrant in the summer but i, I happened my brother and his father-in-law was the, was the produce vendor that had the stall right next to acevedos who used to take care of gus so he knew the acevedos real well he knew Gas Garcia, they took care of Gas Garcia, you know, that's the, those were the ones that did it, but other people came, they brought him food, you know, Gus never had to, anything to eat, I mean, he never had to worry about what to eat, never had to worry about what to drink, and he didn't have to worry about what to sleep, because he had some place to sleep. Okay. What I does bother me, and, you know, and I feel that the LULACs and the American GI Forum owe a lot to Gus, because it, in the history, and we try to show a little bit of it, you know, not try to embarrass them too much, but what I'm saying is, when Gus did, you know, these two major cases, he was a rock star. Mm -hmm. And going from Houston to San Antonio to Fort Worth to Dallas to Laredo to San, you know, even to California, always on the road, you know, speaking engagements, talking to people. Mm -hmm. Lulax and American GFM were hosting all these banquets and dinners and everything for him. So, but when Gus started losing control and, you know, his alcoholism and, you know, his family told us the same thing. You know, he was not the same person when he drank. So I'm pretty sure Lulax, you know, started, you know, not inviting him. But one of the things that really, I, I'm almost sure, bothered uh, Gus, you know, reading all in between the lines and everything that happened, was that when they did the Viva Kennedy, Viva Johnson, in 1963 for for the presidential election, that Lulax and the American JFM got very involved in, in getting John F. Kennedy elected. Well, you know, he never, ever invited Gus to any of those functions during that time. I know he had been into the mental hospital already. I know he had been out. But when you look at it, when he was at the University of Texas, his friend was Lady Bird Johnson. 
who later became wife of Lyndon B. Johnson. His partner, debate partner, Gus was the captain, but his debate, was John Connolly, who became Gus of Texas. Uh, uh, Gus debated John F. Kennedy in a debate in, in the uh, University of Texas against Harvard. They call it at a, a tie for the first time in history that there had ever been a tie. Later on, supposedly, according to a person that saw the letter and everything, uh, Sam Alvarado, who is a civil rights uh, representative never... for LULEX, he says, Efrain, because he had a bar where Gus used to go when he was young. Efrain, he came in here, he took out a letter, and he showed it to me. He said, oh, yellow letter. And in there, he said, dear Gustavo, and it was from John F. Kennedy. And basically, it said, Gustavo, you know, I just want you to know that you really won the debate. But they weren't going to give it to a Mexican. Mm. Says, Not to brag about it. He says, he cared because he wanted to show, you know, what kind of a man, you know, that... John Kennedy. John Kennedy was to admit to something like that. Now, Gus was the first one to introduce John F. Kennedy when he was a senator into political mm -hmm. people here in Texas. You know, that's part of history. Mm -hmm. he, he, uh, Kennedy asked him because Kennedy became good friends with Gus. There's community. There was a mm -hmm. lot of his family says he would get calls from Robert John Kennedy and John Kennedy where he would communicate with them. Now they became such good friends, but yet when, when he was running, you know. He's nowhere to be done, shown. So, and then we also show a lot of things that happened to Gus. You know, mm -hmm. to explain what ended up, you know, his mother dies. Everything happened almost at the same time. Mother dies, his wife divorced him. He can't have contact with his two daughters anymore. He never had contact anymore after, uh, you know, before he passed away, you know, for years because, you know, there was, the issue was his drinking. So when you put all these things, you know, uh, of what's going on and the stress that he was going on, and the genius person that I can see, you know, trying to everything that he could do. I mean, his, um, his nephew says he would sit on a couch and literally recite, you know, cases and go to going through his head. I mean, I don't know what happened, but, you know, I just feel that the LULAX and the American GI Forum, you know, really let him down from about 1957, 58, all the way till he died, the last five years. Well, you know what, too? I think what you're doing as well is you're humanizing this figure. So uh, yes. not only are his contributions great, but the way he's been approached has not been humanized by our own folks. And let, let's be fair to our own folks. Let's just say yet. No, let's say yet. And you're, you're beginning that process by shedding light on different aspects of, of this figure and I think really I've always been fascinated because, um, you know, to me it's, well, here is one of our first activists at the national level. And how do you deal with achieving the pinnacle in your field, which is trying a court case at the Supreme Court and then coming back just to face some of the same discrimination. And here's your own community, not, not perhaps treating you the way you expected. Uh, again, I'm sure he wasn't easy to deal with uh, because why? He was pushing himself constantly. But let's be fair. In a society where, you know, for folks that tuned in are hearing all those slurs, you know, they're like, what are we tuning in? That's what we were called back in that day on a regular basis. Today, mm -hmm. folks may wonder, hey, do I use the word Latinx, Chicano, or Latino, or whatever? At that time, they had those nasty words for us. Any other insights from the film that you'd like to share with folks without giving the whole thing away? Yes. Well, we were researching uh, the uh, uh, his uh, history. You know, uh, I went up to the uh, Bear County Courthouse, and there was an old attorney there. I guess he must have been uh, ninety-five or you know, close to a hundred. And uh, I mentioned that we were working on a project uh, regarding Gus Garcia's life, and he said, "You know." Gas Garcia was the sharpest legal mind there ever was. And uh, 
uh, later on in in uh, in conversing with the Acevedo family, which there's about twelve to fifteen attorneys in in the uh, Acevedo family, but uh, two of them told me, uh, Richard and Ernesto, have mentioned that it was Gas Garcia, his uh, his uh, drive to fight for our raza that motivated them to become attorneys. He, he, he was a great influence, and not only in the Acevedo family, oh. I'm sure there were others, but uh, you know, for, for 12 members of the same family to decide to follow in his footsteps and become attorneys, you know, that, what does that say about this great man? Exactly. Well, so Efren, tell us how, how folks can help support this film, uh, Remembering Gus Garcia, and how they can see it and what they can do to, to keep this legacy going. Okay, right now what, what we're doing, uh, we're t taking invitations from anybody that would like, any town that would like to screen it. Uh, right now, uh, we, you know, we've had a couple offers, and we're trying, if it's an organization like Lurex, say, could you donate, not to us. We have a, a 501c3, the, Gustav, uh, the Gas Garcia Memorial Statue Fund. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to raise about $100,000 that we need to have a statue made of Gus Garcia, uh, seven foot, you know, and hopefully put it where he passed away at the Mercado. At the Mercado, because that's where our last venue, where La Raza can go. And we're always there for every celebration. It's the free venue, basically. And you get to hear the best Tejano music, you know, on you know, all these fiestas. People from all over come and, and visit us. I mean, it's the most popular place in San Antonio for La Raza. And even the buenos come, they come there not for to see something, you know, external. they come to see our cultura, our food, you know, the margarita and, and uh, mm -hmm. tierra. And then they come for all the curios they sell, the art that's sold there, and the music that's there. I mean, everything's souvenirs. Chicano, Mexicano, Tejano, Latino. In other words, very few do you have outside of our, uh, uh, of our mm -hmm. culture. And so I think that this is something that would be great to have it there. Yeah, so we can remind people and, and they can read, you know, because it's going to have, you know, basically briefly what he did on the, on the stool where he's standing. Now, so folks then they get in touch with you and they invite you to their city. So for example, um, to get you to Houston, um, is there like a minimum amount of funds that you need to get to a certain well, town well, or how does that work? We're trying to get, you know, like I tried, like I said, a thousand dollars to be donated directly to Gus and then 250 for either both of us to go or one of us to go to, to take the, the film and present it there. Exactly. Right now, uh, there's a Lula that we're going to be doing it in Fort Worth. They're just trying to get the venue to get you set together. Uh, I know that uh, you heard Medel, you know, the American GI Forum uh, are interested in, in, we've just mentioned it, we haven't talked about anything, but they're interested in showing it. Uh, San Marcos, Corpus Christi. San Marcos, the university, at, at, you know, we showed it, we screened it, we picked up two people that want to take it, they like what they saw, want to take it. And then in Laredo, este, we're getting with the family, because, uh, see, a lot of the family are very, mm. what happened, because nobody has ever really talked about Gus Garcia's right. family. And, you know, so I'm so anxious to take it to Laredo and have it there. And not, and not only, excuse me, friend, but not only that, but we interviewed the family members direct. Yeah. And, and uh, I I don't know of anybody that has shown that uh, that part mm -hmm. of that. And they, they passed away. The one that we and, they, and, they, yeah, and they passed away. <laughs> See, that's the thing that, that's sad, you know, because we're old people. I'm 76, plus is a little bit a year older, I think. <laughs> Pero este, Much older. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, very few people actually got to see and talk to, to Gus, you know, they're still alive. And we're trying to get as many people that knew Gus, their family of Gus, like uh, William Bonilla was a, was a national Lula president in the 50s. Uh, he was a partner of Gus Garcia, in law partner uh, there in Corpus Christi. And wow. you know what he told me, Bonilla, I, mean, he said, Brian, I didn't know if I would have known. You know, that's one thing that Gus never did. Nunca fue pidiche. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I, I tell you what, our hint is guilty of that. We we ask, yes. we don't ask for help. When we, we don't need ask. It, and Gus had, had uh, more pride than, than probably I did, you know, we do. Because Gus, like his, we interviewed his cousin, his Efrain. When Gus was hurting, all he had to do was reach out to my father, who was, you know, multi millionaires, you know, they, they got oil companies. And, and he would have given him anything because that was his favorite. That was his, 
you know, the chosen one. Con sentido. Yeah. Oh, they had already started a broken relationship because Gus didn't want anybody to tell him about drinking. That's heartbreaking. But at the same time, yeah. we can yeah. still build his legacy. How can they get in touch with you to invite you to their cities? And we're bringing you to Houston. It's just a matter of when. Uh, yes, they, we, they can contact us through. We have a lot of information on the, uh, it's called Gus Garcia Memorial Statue Fund. And there, it's got a lot of information. It's got, you know, contact. It's got information about Blasio, about myself, who we are, about the organization, I mean, the, the, I call it the nonprofit organization. Uh, we've got a little bit of info, a lot of information about Gus that we put down, you know, history part of it, uh, of Gus. Because Gus did so many things. And, you know, I forget, I want, you know, he wrote a letter one time to his, to his uncle. And, you know, I, we showed him the letter. And he said, you know what, Tio? Because Gus was drafted. But when he was drafted, you know, he applied to the officer's cadet school. And he scored so high that, you know, of course, you know what they had him doing? He wrote to his uncle, he said, Tio, guess what I'm doing? I'm teaching English to the Anglo, to the English. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure he was teaching me how to write proper English right here, because they were they only had to speak English, but proper English. Okay. I love it. They call it Now about the military. Since he had a, a doctor, uh, doctorate in, in uh, law, he should have gone into the military as a captain, not as a, as a private. Same thing happened to Dr. Hector P. Garcia. He mm -hmm. was drafted and he went in as, a, as an enlisted and, and then he, uh, they, you know, he, and, and then he became a lieutenant. And uh, then they, well, what are you doing out here? You know, you're a doctor, you should be treating well, I'm following orders. Uh, I was placed here, so uh, when they found out that that he was a doctor, they promoted him to to captain and and put him in in uh, as, where he rightfully belonged. And there, you know, there's other other people uh, like that that have been, uh, uh, you know, we have so so much history that it's almost impossible to cover it in. in no, it, exactly. Well, I want to thank you both for covering covering this. Uh, we've been chatting with. Efrin Gutierrez and Placio Salazar, and we're celebrating the oral history documentary, Remembering Gus Garcia. So gracias a ustedes. And thank you, Tony. Uh, uh, a lot of people might not be aware that you uh, have been a great fighter before the State Board of Education, as myself and several others. Where is our history? Where is our culture in the, in the uh, textbooks that our children will learn from? We've managed to get, as you know, about, mm -hmm. about four or five, but there's so many of our heroes that belong in the history books and we keep fighting. And uh, I guess the best way to fight is through our vote. That's why our vote for our Raza to get out and vote is so important. Placida, we're going to replay that. We're going to take that clip and replay it because you're exactly right. Voting is key. I want to thank you too. This this is uh, you're talking about the history we've all made together pre-COVID when we would march to the Texas State Board of Education and demand that Mexican American history be adopted statewide, and it was. But you bring up a great point: is that if we had not united, if we had not spoken up, that would not happen. And now we got to keep going to the next level. So you know, can I tell you? I, you know, I'm going to the Mexican American Studies in high school here in San Antonio, and there's a Anthony Gonzalez doing a great job over at uh, John Marshall. And it's interesting that John Marshall is mostly you know Northside, you know, and they have Mexican American Studies in here in Edgewood, you know, where <laughs> Lanier. We have no Mexican American Studies in the Chicano community, but yet the other communities are picking it up. But what I'm doing, I went you know to three classes, you know, that I spoke about Gus, and I brought you know to give him a little bit. You know, you should see the kids. I, it, it made me feel so good because they are so, I mean, they had never heard about this. Hungry. They don't know about it. They're hungry for and it. And they're hungry for it. You know, and I'm going, wow. I mean, and they told me, you can do it if you want. Because, you know, I was feeling too. I said, no, I said, I'll stay here through all three classes because <laughs> it's important. It. Because I saw one class and, they, you know, like, they're so, they don't even want to leave. They want to keep on talking. And then, you know, so I've been to that school a couple of times. And what I'm saying is the youth, I've been to Damien in the Valley in Mexican American Studies, and it just excites me to see mm -hmm. people in the Mexican American Studies in the high schools are reacting to. And my my understanding from the different people, the teachers, so on, saying, you know, that 
they're doing better percentage-wise, you know, going on to college. A lot of the students that are going to take a Mexican-American studies are, you know, getting a higher percentage in college than, you know, the kids that don't take Mexican-American studies. It's something that I, I'm going to look into more because I think no, that's, that's great. Well, I tell you what, you mentioned Linear High School with the Latino Bookstore where I'm the literary curator. Um, we actually did visit with some poets and writers to Linear High School so let's team up when school resumes let's team up and if it's not a curriculum there yet i'd be happy to team up with the both of you to bring writers to to go visit um i'd be happy to take my book there uh, additional poets and writers and let's give a couple shouts out to some more books you mentioned the legacy of mexican americans in world war ii shout out to the oral history project dr um dr rivas rodriguez from the university of texas she's been documenting those stories and and finally, if people do want to do a, a little study on their own and, and introduce this to their community, you can uh, get the book, uh, Echo en Tejas, edited by Dagoberto Gilb. There's a whole section on the, the Three Rivers incident with uh, Felix Longoria, the Longoria affair. There's also a film about that, but Gus Garcia had a, a role about that. But that brings in, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Garcia, Sergeant Garcia, you know, uh, that brings in, Tejas, Mas Tejas, and more history. So, hey, you guys are fun to talk to. We got to have you both back on the show again. You up for it? I'd like to have you on my radio show Saturday morning, any Saturday morning from 9 to 11 uh, on K Alamo. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we're on Facebook, and a lot of we get a lot of calls from Houston area that are watching or listening to my show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you for your público todo. Gracias. Gracias a ustedes. Encantado. Would love to team up. By all means, I appreciate that. We will. Hey, folks. What a great show. Thank you for joining us. This is Tony Diaz, the Libro Traficante. This is a multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. We are watching the video on fox26houston.com. You're experiencing the audio on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston's community station, and experience this on social media. I really want to thank our team. Roxana Guzman is our multi-platform broadcast producer. She's helping us behind the scenes all the time. Thank you for that, helping us lining up guests. Also, Rodrigo Bravo Jr. is our audio engineer who helps edit our FM broadcast and podcast. I want to thank you all, dear listeners. Hey, thank you. Thank you both for being our guests. Thank you for having tuning in, and we look forward thank to you. And remember, you have the power to make change happen through your votes.